<laughs> Hello, friends and family. It has been a quick minute since I have been um, on this stage. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. Um, and I'm, as Brian has said, I have been in many roles at West Heights over the years, and um, I was the youth director here at West Heights uh, a couple years right before the dawn of COVID. My family and I attended West Heights after returning from missions with the BIC Church in South America for over 13 years. And I finished off high school here. When we returned, I attended West Heights uh, youth group under the leadership of Tom Fenske at the time. I went off to college. I did a trip around the world. Some of you who were probably like teenagers, preteens now might remember Max the Moose, a little stuffed animal I took with me from country to country. I think Max actually lives downstairs. Um, someone can go find him if they would like. Um, not right now. Um, and since leaving my role here uh, a couple years ago, I went on to working full-time as a psychotherapist locally with kids, teens, and young adults. And in February of this year, I actually moved down to the Niagara region, which is why you may have not seen me around um, lately, to begin a private practice there to be closer to my parents, but mostly to be closer to my now fiance, Steve. Um, <laughs> Many, many of you were a part of the prayer process uh, for him. I used to participate in the, in the Secret Sister program. I think you still have the Secret Sister program. And on the form that you fill out for your Secret Sister, there's a spot where you fill in your spouse's name. And I used to fill it out, not applicable, um, but we can pray him into existence, was what I would say. So big thanks to Sandra Chapman and Jesus. <laughs> Here we are. Anyways, <laughs> I do know um, the last time I spoke here uh, would have been during the time that messages were recorded, and so I don't have the luxury of like clipping uh, things out, so bear with me if I do stutter or if something comes out in a funny way. Um, there's not as much grace as the technology provided a couple years ago. Now I've learned and I've followed that you are tracing through the book of Exodus. Just kidding. I know you're doing first, Peter. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't that be awkward? Guest speaker misunderstands the assignment. <laughs> right, Josh. <laughs> In all seriousness, I'm stoked to be able to continue on this trek through the book of first Peter with you, centering on the context of the letter at the time it was written, and then what it teaches us for our lives today. I've learned a lot through preparing this message, and I hope it can be a challenge to you and your people, similar to how the early church might have been spurred on by what Peter was sharing at that time. I may be biased, I have been steeped in this a little bit, but I think we have a really good section to mull on today in this book. But before we get started, our saunter through this passage, let's review what's been going on in this book thus far up until this point uh, before we begin. So Peter has been encouraging the listeners, the readers, the early church to endure suffering and persecution by giving themselves to God. He praises God for the salvation they have, and he invites the church to live as the new people of God, which actually goes countercultural to the patterns of the world at that time. He works through this in the earlier chapters, teaching people how to, not, or how to live as aliens, not the extraterrestrials, in a broken world to bring Jesus and his love to those who don't know him. The tone of this letter is urgent, it's intense, not quite like when you cross the border and you're asked like a series of serious questions, but it's pretty serious nonetheless. Enter 1 Peter 4, verse 1 through 11, our passage of the morning. And this section is all about the posture and the attitude of the believers. Some translations have titled this section as stewards of God grace, God's grace. We've also got serving God in everything, serving God in the last days. Safe to say, it's all about how to serve God. 
So we're going to dip our toes in it. And he begins in verse 1 and 2. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. So I'm a, I'm a stop and think about what I'm reading as I go person, so you'll have to bear with me this morning. Um, before we read too far, it's important we look at the word attitude. It shows up here in verse 1, and it's going to shape how we look at this segment of the letter. So it says, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude Jesus had. Now, what is an attitude? It's that thing your mom tells you to stop having when you're in a crusty mood, yes, but an attitude, as per the dictionary, is also a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior, how we act. So stemming from what we think or feel about something, how many of you could say you have some sort of attitude? Not just a bad attitude, yeah? Okay, we all do. So a candid attitude moment for you. I developed an attitude about bats, not like baseball bats, like the gross little rat-with-wing creatures. Um, in all fairness, I feel like it's an okay attitude to have based on the traumatic experience I have had with them over the years. We're talking like over half a dozen different interactions where they have been too close to me. Um, I decided, after enough unfortunate encounters with them, that all bats are some sort of mishap in creation, and I don't, won't ever like them, don't want to look at them, don't want to see them, feel them, hear them. Um, they're not my friends. And I act in such a way that repels me from them. Uh, in fact, my first week working here, Mimi came over to the portable building, and she said, guys, you want to come see something? And I sat in my cubicle, and I looked over at her, and I said, is it a bat? I just knew, I knew there was a bat that was being, Mimi was so excited about it. Um, every time I, I didn't come in the building to look at it, but every time I walk into this building, I still look to the same spot, I won't tell you where it is, where that bat was, <laughs> to make sure. Um, I have developed a pretty strong attitude about how I feel about bats. But back to First Peter, what does having this same attitude as Jesus mean? How do we adopt his attitude? Now, if you've never seen a bat in your life, and you heard me talk about bats, I hope that I have convinced you to kind of adopt what I have said. You'd think, yeah, I don't really want to interact with bats either, Christina. They don't sound very fun. Um, but if you, if you listen to me, you'd probably start to trust me, and you might start to develop that same idea. But here we're invited to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Jesus, and that term attitude is the Greek noun ennoia, meaning the act of thinking, considering, or meditating. So when we're thinking about what attitude Jesus had, specifically his attitude as he faced physical pain for sin, as he received the beating he did, the nails into his hand, hanging on the cross, what was his attitude and consideration and his thoughts on sin? It may sound self-explanatory or redundant, but his understanding, his thought, his consideration was that he wanted us to be free of sin in our lives, wanting nothing to do with it. Peter starts off this passage by inviting those who follow Jesus to adopt that framework, that repelling of sin that believers should not go on living in if they're saved. Earlier in the chapter before, in 1 Peter 3.18, we read, Christ suffered for our sins one time for all. He was over it, finished. He paid the price with his death, set us free, and he wants nothing to do with it. 
1 Peter 1.4 says to the readers, the listeners, you have finished with sin. We need this attitude. In this first verse, he also invites the church to arm themselves. That him dying his death is an invitation for us to equip ourselves with an attitude of defense against sin from returning and entering our lives. This attitude of Jesus giving himself to die once and for all and wanting to be rid of sin is applicable to us to be also done with our sin. So as we work through this passage, we'll see what sort of attitudes believers are invited to equip themselves with. These attitudes were relevant to the early church, and they're actually more than relevant to us today. To start us off, we are called to an attitude of commitment. Commitment meaning full trust, even if suffering is involved. Jesus communicates this in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a no-looking-back, full-steam-ahead kind of commitment in life choices as well as mind choices. This attitude of commitment in verse 2 is pointing toward a life that looks for the will of God. Realistically, on this side of eternity, we will continue to battle and wrestle with sin. When we seek God's will, we aren't rid of temptation or succumbing to temptation, but as Charles Spurgeon puts it nicely, he says, I beg you to remember that there is no getting quit of sin. There is no escaping from its power, except by contact and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stick to Jesus, and that commitment reflects the pursuit of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, no matter the struggle we will continue to face along the way. Okay, we're shuffling on to verse three to six now. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose, choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Oof. <clears throat> Sometimes I think about current day struggles and think, yikes, if only we were in Bible times, you know, when the biggest issue at hand might have been getting yelled at because you forgot to dust your sandals off when you entered a building. But I'm kidding. Reality in this passage shows us that the struggles of society were not that different at their core from what we see today. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, idolatries. I have heard all of these struggles in today's time. Drunkenness is not an uncommon societal struggle. Lust, idolatries, this can be anything that takes away focus and commitment from communion to God. So what does it mean as a believer to not immerse ourselves with this, even when our non-participation means that others might judge or malign you? I love the phrase, they are surprised you do not join them, because we will surprise people by non-participation. Maybe it's in the way we don't speak about others at work. Maybe it's in the way we find alternative ways to enjoy ourselves after work. Maybe it's in the way we practice a life that doesn't lust after others, their things, or their lifestyle. Other translations of this verse say, they think it's strange. We don't join them. The church has been strange to the world for some time, and we will continue to be strange as per the standards of this world. But when we have an attitude that seeks after Jesus, we will be weird or peculiar for not wanting to live as the world celebrates. 
the lives of non-believers or the world has not changed drastically since the early days. The issues themselves have really not evolved. We will struggle with living lives set apart from the world as the invitation to join into what the world is doing can even seem inviting and can be masked by things that seem fun, enjoyable. So to counter such a framework of living, Christians should live with an attitude of wisdom. Wisdom is this word that evokes in me a picture of uh, like Grandmother Willow from Pocahontas, 1995, um, with her wise lines, sometimes the right way is not the easiest one, or Rafiki from The Lion King, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, I think of a grandparent, or Solomon in the Bible, um, someone who has lived life and knows some things. Wisdom is the ability to contemplate and act productively using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. It's a combination of using what we know to make choices that lead to good outcomes. So an attitude of wisdom is reacting from a place of God's heart and love, not from what the world might say leads to love and acceptance. So we, we enact wisdom when we, we think about the why behind what we're doing or what we're being invited into. Next up in verse 7, we read, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Christians should live with an attitude of serious prayer. What does serious prayer look like? When I was a kid, I was paranoid that an earthquake would happen. Our family we were missionaries in Colombia at the time, and there was a, a, a thing going around that it had been 200 years since the last major earthquake. And we were told that we needed to prepare for this earthquake as a city. There was like propaganda going out, like to have emergency kits and be ready. Um, and I did not want an earthquake to happen. So every night before bed, I would pray. And the ending of my prayer was always, and let there be no earthquake, amen. That was like the, the rote, serious prayer. And a couple years into my rote, serious prayer, uh, an earthquake did happen. Um, and my framework of serious prayer, or what I thought was serious prayer, was broken. Um, I took it seriously, I did it every day, so why did an earthquake happen? But serious prayer is not just fervent, unstopping prayer. Peter is sharing here with the early church that they maintain the hope that Jesus will return, and if they maintain that hope, they aren't gonna just twiddle their thumbs and wait. They're to pray and to seek God's heart to serve him where they are. In my example, God didn't answer the prayer the way I wanted, um, but he did answer my prayer by keeping us safe, and he used it as an example of his provision um, and the city and the space that we lived in. So serious prayer is not about rote, repetitive. Um, it's a posture of inviting God into how we might be able to live. Peter is saying that there's so much negative and tempting things going on in the world, on in the world that we need to be using prayer as a line of communing with God. Richard Foster wrote an excellent book on prayer titled Prayer. Finding the heart's true home. He writes that even when we dwell on evil, we can learn to pray and bring things to the Father. He says, it is that we should learn to pray even while we are dwelling on evil. Perhaps we are waging an interior battle over anger or lust or pride or greed or ambition. We need not isolate these things from prayer. The church was face to face with these issues and was invited to pray. It's like a muscle, bringing the Lord into our stumbling and falling forward. However, though God can feel distant when we come to him in serious prayer, the very act of humbling ourselves before him and entrusting our lives and our hearts to him is not something he overlooks. He is near. 
We're nearing the end of our broken down read-through. We're going to go on to verse 8 to 11. Above all, I have to pause here. I do appreciate the clarifying statement, above all, because it's indicating something big is coming. Above all things that we've been talking about. Above all commitment, above all wisdom, above all prayer. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Above all, love. Christians should live with an attitude of love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and those not. I read a quote recently about love in communion with believers. Where love abounds in fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every, view is view, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. This rings true to me. When our actions and our intentions are in a loving stance, I am so much more gracious in overlooking offenses around me. I also think it's kind of harder to be gracious to fellow believers, and I would add those that we feel closest to. They have the ability to evoke in us a reaction that might be less filtered and less slow to love. It is much easier said than done. Let me love that coworker better. Let me love that person I see on Sundays at church differently. Let me be gracious to that coworker who has already hurt me, frustrated me, angered me, disrespected me. This section of our passage shows us what love looks like. Love looks like using our gifts. He mentions hospitality. In the early church, hospitality was a great gift, as inns were sometimes not always viewed as the safest spaces to be. An open home became, or was, a safe space to find rest and welcome. This craft, or this gift, has lost some of its form in today's time. Though I think if I were to ask you to think of a space or a place or a person who has made you feel welcomed and hospitable, hospitalized? Hospital, that doesn't sound right. Um, you could all think of a space or a place where you have felt that. COVID really shrunk our perspective on hospitality for a period of time. Actually, right when COVID hit, West Heights was planning a potluck palooza, I think is what it was called. And it was gonna be hospitality in people's homes with like mini potlucks happening. Um, and that was West Heights' way of creating, vir not virtual, it was not virtual at the time, in-person community. Um, several families had signed up and people were gonna connect. Peter goes on to talk about the gifts of speaking and service. We see these fleshed out in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and we're not going to jump to those passages, but love looks like using the gifts we've been given. So maybe it's speaking, maybe it's apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, shepherding, teaching, exhortation, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, helps or service ministries, giving, ruling, showing mercy, faith, or discernment. The ultimate purpose of these spiritual gifts and our use of them is that God be glorified and praised. We may not always be able to fully activate 
or, or live out the gifts we have depending on our life situation, but that doesn't mean we can't be used or we can't be seeking out ways to use the gifts we have. For instance, uh, since relocating, I'm currently living with my parents. And hospitality is something I enjoy, but it's hard to do when you're in someone else's shared space. But what does hospitality mean, and how can it be exercised, even if you don't always have the space to bring people into? So the other week, it looked like picking up a young adult and taking them out for ice cream, um, and creating hospitality in a mobile environment. Hospitality can be a sharing of time, food, resources, with someone else that blesses and encourages them. And I'm... I'm inviting you to think about what your gifts might be. I don't know everyone to know and say, this is what I know your gift is, what your gift is, but I'm inviting you to think about what your gifts might be. And if you don't know, take some time to go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, spend some time in prayer asking others. Asking others is a great way to, to figure out what your gifts might be um, and, and, and to think about how you might be using them. We can share these gifts with other believers and we can share them um, with people who don't know and, and don't know Jesus. All right, we have exegeted. We have completed a critical explanation or interpretation of our scriptural text. We have used our theologian hats to get this far. But now, I wanna offer some morsels that I've been mulling on as I sit with this passage because I think it's a great invitation from the early church, or for the early church and for us as the late church to live a life of service set apart for God. We've observed we should all have attitudes of commitment, wisdom, prayer, and love. And it sounds simple when we were to like that, but I would be doing a disservice if I didn't take a moment here to look at things that I believe get in the way of us holding these attitudes and pursuing them full steam ahead. So we're gonna look at three, fun fact, they rhyme, um, and we're gonna unpack them together. The first is hurry. We live in a pace of life where it can be very challenging to live with a reflective and intentional outlook on holding attitudes that set us apart. We could even be hurried about good things. For example, I think back to my time here at West Heights, and I by time struggled with hurry in my role because there was so many things that could always be done. And I might have been busy thinking about administrative tasks, maybe house visits during COVID. Um, I could be busy getting prepped for our epic Zoom calls. Um, they were epic, right? Okay, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> and getting all those things done that I might have forgotten, full disclosure, to maybe pause and pray about the things sometimes in the hustle and bustle of my ministry. If you haven't already read John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and you feel like hurry is an area that you might want to tackle or you struggle with or you're curious about, you should hurry and uh, check this one out. There's a lot of good in this book. I've read it twice. I have two quotes that I want to just highlight from his book because he words things so well. And the first is on how hurry relates to love. And he says, hurry and love are incompatible. All my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I am in a hurry, late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day, I ooze anger, tension, a critical nagging, the antithesis of love. As we read what Peter wrote, we are to above all love those around us. And shuffling and bustling doesn't always get us there. In fact, it can do a disservice, even if it's good, that we're hustling and bustling about. Hurry is the noise that can distract from serving. 
John Mark Comer goes on to say, and he, he looks back on Corey Ten Boom's life and says, Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have this exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even your own soul. It's a big reason we may miss out on using our gifts in ways that spur us and others. I think about the gifts that I've referenced this morning and how hard it can be to use them if we're in a hurry. How hospitable can I be if I have 10 places I need to be by the end of the day or if my life is piled high with things to do? We live in a world that celebrates hustle and bustle and we're in an era of speedy self-checkouts and we can, we can be also led to feel shame if we're not hustling and bustling sometimes. How helpful am I to others when I'm always rushing or not available to help? Um, how can I use my gift of leading others in discipleship or shepherding if I don't have the time to fully be present in those relationships? Maybe it's a mentee, a disciple, a maybe it's a kid from kids' ministry, a youth, a son, or a daughter, or a grandchild, where hurry and hustle and bustle distract us from the use of our gifts. So that is the first. The second, I said they would rhyme, is worry. Um, worry? Christians? Never. I'm going to ask a radical question by show of hands who has ever experienced worry. I'm not going to lie, I woke up with worry today. Um, what is Christina doing? Asking a room of people who worry to raise their hands. That maybe isn't a good question either to ask. My apologies, but worry. Have we ever let worry get in the way of doing, saying, loving others the way Christ calls us to? I am at the front lines of this. The amount of times I have talked through situations um, about how I might have acted or reacted, and the core issue of what stopped me was my worry of how I would come across in a scenario is embarrassing. The amount of times where I might have thought, if only I had encouraged this person or told them what I thought, um, maybe about how they were acting or how they were presenting themselves or complimented them in some way, and I, or telling them something about Jesus. The times that I have held back from doing that because I'm afraid of what they might perceive, it's not, it's not a tiny number in my life. It can really get in the way of us using our gifts. What if the person at work I give words of wisdom to thinks I'm a loose cannon? If I help or serve someone in this way, what will others think of me? How will I explain what I'm doing or why I'm doing this? Um, you know, what will they think of my home if I invite someone into my home? Philippians 4.6 says, do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. That is a great place to start in prayer with our worry and asking God about our worry, bringing it to God. Um, standing here is something that brings worry in my brain when I think about it. You do not want to know what I dreamed about last night. Um, it was scary. There was no roof, okay? And so <laughs> bringing our worries to God is a better place to start. Our last hindrance that I want to talk about today is the word judgery. What is this word you speak of, Christina? Well, I needed a word that reflected judgment to rhyme with worry and hurry, so bam, judgery. I'm just kidding. I'm going to give you the definition. So it is when someone who clearly doesn't know your life is judging you. I'll give you a sentence. Why are you all up in my business? You're being real judgery right now. 
Judgment. Christians. No way. Yahweh. Yahweh for sure. I almost think uh, if you've grown up in the church or have been steeped in the church, you are much more prone to this one too. This is my objective opinion as someone who has been grown up in the church. How easy it is to observe someone else and critique their intentions, their actions, their motives. And it hinders us from being able to serve and love well when we're holding those in our mind or in our hearts. Carrie Newhoff wrote an article titled, Three Things Christians Do That Non-Christians Despise. The three broken down were be judging, be hypocritical, and stink at friendship. And I'm not going to unpack the whole article, but I really like how he worded his section on judgment. He said, I realized years ago that very few people get judged into change. Far more get loved into it. It also occurred to me that the presence of judgment almost always guarantees an absence of love. He tries to remember this rule of if he's judging someone, he's not loving them, and you can't judge someone and love someone at the same time. He takes it a step further, and he wonders what would happen if if we as believers didn't judge the world, leaving that job to God, and started loving it instead. And he goes on to to clarify, he thinks that that's what Jesus did, and I I would agree. We We are hindered to love, bring our desires in serious prayer, to seek wisdom, and show commitment when we find ourselves hurried, worried, and filled with judgery, judgment. There are more, but these three feel pivotal to the day and age that we live in. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Worry can run rampant. Hurry distracts us from all that is needing tending, and judgment helps us feel better about our circumstance in comparison to our brother and our sister. But when we stop working together, we stop loving well, and we run the risk of not seeking the Father's heart when we don't make space. Above all, love. To think, to pause, to pray, and ask, what can I do with my gifts to serve the Lord? What can bring him glory as I serve him in these days? It might be as simple as an affirming conversation with someone else, helping where you know you can, joining mentorship leadership in youth or kidsmen at your local church. Our lives are not our own. They are lent to us, and as those who have accepted Jesus in our hearts, we believe that he can use us, that his ways are better than our own. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation is clear in this passage, the beginning that Jesus died the physical death to save us from our physical sins, that we would pursue him and live lives that please him. So we worry, we hurry, and we can be judgy in our ways, How do we catch ourselves and seek change? Maybe it's a practical solution of setting a timer, 10 minutes of slow time per day. Maybe 10 is a lot, maybe it's three. What would happen if I began my day with solitude with the Lord? What if I asked him one question when I woke up? How can I serve you today? What if I prayed one statement, Lord, help me find an opportunity to love well today? Fun fact, when we do this, when we mean it, God answers. He shows us. We also have to be attent to looking for it. Maybe worry-wise, we seek ways to shrink our worry. Maybe we come up with truths that remind us and remind ourselves how to slow down when worries run rampant. Like, for instance, my dream last night, like, I knew West Heights would have a roof when I came this morning. My fiancé, Steve, he's awesome, by the way. He's a beekeeper. Unbelievable. 
Get it? Okay. And he knows way more about bees than I do, but this year I was upgraded to a beekeeping apprentice. His words, not mine. Um, bees live in a hive under the reign of one queen. They all have separate roles and separate gifts. Together they encourage one another, they forage food for winter and for us to harvest. But without each bee and their prospective role, the hive would really struggle. If we didn't have the drones, the male bees, there wouldn't be baby bees. If we didn't have housekeeper bees, the hive wouldn't be super organized. If we didn't have nurse bees, the little babies that are growing wouldn't have help. If we didn't have forager bees going out and getting the pollen and the nectar and bringing it back to the hive, um, there wouldn't be honey created. So. Why am I telling you about bees? It's cool, for one, and for two, we don't have the same gifting, right? Um, we don't have the same things that, that are in each of us to use in the church, and so we do have different roles, but we all have the same invitation, just like the early church, to have an attitude of commitment in what we do, serious prayer, wisdom, and love, and we get to play that out in community, practicing our gifts, and above all, above all, loving in the process. I'm going to pray for us for this week that God may show and invite us all into new or old ways of using our gifts for his heart's purpose to draw others to him. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your continued grace with the church that era after era, as sin continues, you continually draw us to you. I pray for fresh reminders of how you have called each of us to live in our day-to-day -day lives, in our families, in our workplaces. I pray that we may seek to commit, pray, and uh, find wisdom and to love in our week today. We're hopeful for all that you have in store, and we thank you for your presence in our lives. Amen. <laughs>